Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, it's our annual Year in Review episode, where we talk about what happened in 2021 and what we'll be watching for in 2022. Our guests are fantastic. We've got Jennifer Haverkamp, director of the Graham Sustainability Institute at the University of Michigan, and Sarah Ladislaw, managing director of the U.S. program at RMI, formerly Rocky Mountain Institute. I'll ask Jennifer and Sarah to highlight the most significant developments in energy and environmental policy during 2021, identify some important issues that may have been overlooked, and give us a sense of what they'll be watching closely in 2022. We cover lots of ground in this conversation and even have some fun along the way. Stay with us. Okay, Sarah Ladislaw and Jennifer Haverkamp, uh, two friends and really amazing researchers and scholars and policy experts. Thank you so much for coming on to our uh, annual year-end episode. Thanks for, Thanks having, for having us. Yeah, it's great. It's great to have you both. And Sarah uh, is a stalwart in our annual uh, end of the year episode. This is her third year running, um, but Jennifer is brand new. So welcome, Jennifer. And we always ask our guests how they ended up working on energy and environmental issues, whether that began as a kid or later in life. So what kind of drew you into this field? Well, thanks for asking that. Um it didn't start in the womb, but it did start very early. <laughs> I um, grew up in southern Indiana on a bluff that overlooked the Ohio River. And so we saw the natural beauty of the river valley. Um, the woods right out our backyard was my playground full of flowers and turtles, birds. But looming over this entire beautiful view was the Clifty Creek coal-fired power plant, which in its day was one of the largest and most acid rain polluting uh, plants, and it's still operating. So I think just that jarring juxtaposition got me interested very early on in both natural resource conservation and also pollution control, and I've stuck with that throughout my career. Yeah, that's so interesting. Yeah, as soon as you said Ohio River, I, I think I kind of knew where that story was going. <laughs> yeah, that's really great. Um, thank you again for for coming onto the show today. So we are um, beginning our holiday modes. Uh, the show is going to air um, in in the early New Year. I just want to point out that it's December twenty second when we're recording it. So if any monumental events happen between then and now, we will not be talking about them. Also, just want to point out that some of us are in unusual places. I'm in my in-laws basement where there's a persistent drip. So I apologize if anyone's hearing dripping in the background. Um, but uh, but now with that uh, administrative detail in place, uh, I just want to ask both of you to reflect on 2021 and, you know, keeping in mind that it's been a, a pretty wild year, kind of like last year. There's been a lot of excitement around vaccine rollouts, and that's been contrasted with the continuing you know, really terrible death toll that continues to rise in the U.S. and around the world. We've had the emergence of Omicron uh, and the concerns over that. On the environmental policy front, it's been a really active year as well. We had the inauguration of a new president and a new Congress in the United States. We had COP26 in Glasgow, which we've talked about a lot on the show, uh, and so many other interesting developments. So when you look back at 2021, and you, uh, I'm going to make you pick one thing. What's the one thing, the most significant development in energy or environmental policy that sort of comes to your mind and you think you'll remember in years ahead? Let's, let's start with Sarah. Sarah, what, what would you pick? 
Yeah, well, thanks. Thanks, Daniel. It's a pleasure to be back. I can't tell if I keep getting invited back because I say things that are valuable uh, in the previous years or you're just waiting for me to do it. <laughs> so <laughs> No, it is. It's because you're great. I'm, I'm pleased to be back. Thanks, Daniel. Um, yeah, there's so many things to choose from. I think, you know, there two things that I have to keep reminding myself of in this year is that it it's both like some days feels like 2021 was a year of remarkable progress because the rate and pace of policymaking and climate diplomacy was just so frenetic compared to the previous several years that there was so much to watch and track and think about. And because the theme was ambition, everything was big, right? You know, there's so many different things being done in different countries, the United States included, that was meant to be big and important and move the needle uh, for us on this uh, issue of, you know, reducing greenhouse gas emissions and getting prepared to deal with climate change impacts that we're seeing more and more every day. And, and then other days, it felt like nothing was happening because the progress we need to make seems so far away. And so I had a really interesting sort of rough year in the highs and the lows of it all. And when I when I tried to sort of dispassionately take a look, you know, I'm spending a lot more time thinking about the United States um, these days and my new job. I, I do think that the Infrastructure uh, Investment and Jobs Act in the U.S., which was formerly known as the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill that was signed into law, is pretty important. You know, for those of us who live and work in Washington, D.C., and think about federal policy, it had been infrastructure week you know, for years on end, uh, and uh, it, it, and it became sort of a running joke. We actually got some fairly significant funding for some pretty important U.S. energy policy priorities in that bill. And because we were waiting for the Build Back Better Act, which had an order of magnitude more funding and different kinds of funding, which maybe we can get into later, the infrastructure bill felt smaller, but it it's actually kind of, you know, has a remarkable amount of of, of things in it um, that are only really comparable to, you know, other uh, types of stimulus funding we've had in the past, uh, you know, post 2008, 2009 financial crisis. And, and I think it would be really a mistake, you know, not to think about how very, very, very important it is that that money gets spent in the most climate advantageous ways, which I think is still kind of an open question as to whether that will happen. But, you know, obviously, like includes like $20 billion or so for clean energy demonstration projects, including hydrogen and direct air capture and CCUS, um, you know, $11 billion or so for grid resilience. $7 billion to help deliver our battery supply chain, uh, lots of funding for the weatherization program to help with low-income um, housing, um, you know, energy efficiency programs. It's just an enormous amount of, of spending. And now the U.S. Department of Energy has got to think about how to execute it all well. And so I think that we have to recognize that that is a pretty significant undertaking, how states and cities and utilities and and companies, what they do with that that funding is going to be a really big part of the next several years. And, and 
is so impactful for me because I do think one of the things I think is most important about our climate journey is making sure that people see the positive economic impact in their communities. And infrastructure is a is a big way of making that happen. And so I, I do think it was a is a really significant thing that happened that could be made so much more significant if we passed the Build Back Better Act um, for a lot of reasons. Um, and in fact, could not get executed as well if we failed to pass the Build Back Better Act. Um, but but in and of itself, I think we shouldn't discount how important that spending could be to, to the U.S. Um, uh, emissions trajectory. Yeah, great points. And especially because some of the potential impacts are right further off, right? We're talking about investments in R&D and demonstration and pilot projects where, you know, it's hard to kind of model the impacts of those over 10 or 20 years, but we know that they could be, you know, very significant. So great point, Sarah. Jennifer, how about you? What would be at the top of your list? Oh, you make it hard by saying that we're supposed to pick just one thing. <laughs> I'm, I'm tempted to answer by saying what's most significant is that we swapped out the Trump administration and swapped in the Biden administration. And in particular, looking at uh, who they brought in to fill those positions, there's so much experience on the teams that they have working on climate and energy that people were able to hit the ground running, um, which has really made... Uh, when you look at it uh, in the glass half full way, uh, 2021 was a great year for a lot of things. And Sarah's covered some of them. And, you know, I would I would just on the international front, you know, think about because of Biden being the president, we now have the U.S. rejoined the Paris Agreement. We had a summit in the spring. We had, you know, peddled the metal diplomacy all year long leading up to Glasgow, building up support for all these um, sub-agreements and getting more and more countries to raise their level of ambition for their own Paris Agreement commitment. And so you can go, you know, on and on with what a difference that has made, though the caveat also is so many of those are pledges and commitments, and we won't know until a few years from now or many years from now how many of those are actually implemented in a way that, that averts the dangerous climate change we're trying to avert. Um, I guess the other way I would have answered your question is the most significant development is what didn't happen. And that is that we do not yet have uh, major climate legislation, whether it's the Build Back Better bill or some freestanding climate legislation. It's really true that there's a lot of good stuff in the infrastructure bill. But I think Glasgow could have been different if we'd had that legislation already on the books. And I worry about what will happen in the time between this year and next year. When countries are supposed to come back with even stronger commitments for the next climate cop um, conference of parties, what they will do if the U.S. doesn't manage to pass significant legislation um, soon into the new year. Yeah, really good points. Really good points, and um, and nicely done. Squeezing squeezing two in there, <laughs> but they but they do they dovetail for sure. So um, so no no flag on the play. Um, oh, thanks. <laughs> so um, so I've I've unfairly asked you to to just pick one topic that would be sort of your you know headline for the year. Um, now I'd like to ask each of you to pick one topic that you think hasn't received um, as much attention as you think it deserves. Something that maybe flew under the radar a little bit. Um, let's start with Jennifer uh, this time. Jennifer, what would you point to? Um, I would say that one of the things that's a very significant development that doesn't get as much attention by the people who follow every move of the UN Climate Conference is what's been happening to 
the Kigali Amendment to the Montreal Protocol. And that's an agreement from 2016, which led to a commitment to phase down the use of hydrofluorocarbons, which are a really potent greenhouse gas. And uh, estimates are that if it's fully implemented, it will avoid half a degree of warming this century. So huge piece of the puzzle that needs yeah. to be done. And uh, a lot of stuff has happened in the last year. Actually, at the end of the Trump administration, they managed to put into the AIM Act the uh, legislative fix needed for EPA to be able to implement the U.S. commitments under that agreement. And we now, um, under the Biden administration, have the EPA wrote the regulations necessary to implement it, which is an 85% phase down over the coming 15 years. And uh, just last month, President Biden sent the amendment to the Senate for ratification so we can be a full party to that amendment. And it's also significant, I think, both because of its impact, but also because it's unlike a lot of uh, sectors in the climate space, you have both bipartisan support by Republicans and Democrats on the Senate side for this uh, policy. And you also have the industry and the NGOs working closely together to make it happen. Yeah, that that's a great one. That that's one I definitely haven't followed closely enough. So I'm I'm really glad you pointed to it. Um, Sarah, same question over to you. What's something that you think is important or interesting and maybe hasn't received as much attention uh, as you think it should? Yeah, I'm going to take a page out of Jennifer's book here and smoosh a few together. <laughs> <laughs> but they have a theme, so I'm hoping I don't get penalized either. Um, I have been really interested. Um, it's it's not terribly dissimilar from my focus on the infrastructure bill as well, in that it ties together this idea of how we're going to decarbonize heavy industry. And I, you know, I see the world in sort of, you know, two ways, which is not dissimilar from the ways it's been explained to me by people who are, you know, work on these issues uh, at a technical level. You know, we have these technologies that are just ready to hit the market and they need to do it as quickly as possible. And we need to electrify as much as possible, you know, and decarbonize the electric power sector and drive efficiency. And all of many of those technologies are just ready. Right. And, and, and there's a, another suite of technologies, which are involved in heavy industry for which, you know, 50% of, you know, what we're going to actually need to decarbonize out to 2050, those technologies just aren't available yet at scale, like in the market. And so I'm super curious, just as a human endeavor, <laughs> what it takes for us to do that. And I, I've been really interested to see and was quite surprised, actually, um, both in the the context of U.S. legislation, but then, you know, at COP26, seeing how many activities and in the lead up to COP26, how many activities were designed to organize markets around introducing um, decarbonized heavy industry, whether it's shipping or aviation fuels or steel or cement or chemicals, there's all sorts of things happening to organize producers and consumers and regulation and policy and finance around accelerating those markets. And it it's super interesting to watch. And I think that it's probably something people aren't paying enough detailed attention to. One of the things I wanted to flag that seemed 
you know, really important to me was the USTR, US trade representative in the EU in the context of coming to a trade agreement uh, about some of the tariffs we have around steel, um, basically saying, hey, we want to find a way to include carbon intensity in how we think about our trade arrangements going forward. Which to me, you know, takes the carbon border adjustment mechanism that had been introduced in Europe to to try and you know guard European markets against um, emissions intensive industries where they have you know protection that's you know that would make their industries less competitive, and extends it to say, hey, how about we try to find a way in which we can think about you know, countries that are trying to reduce the carbon intensity of heavy industry and and work together. And it is, you know, I don't know where it's going to go. And there's lots of complications with how to create such a club and, and critical questions about how do you include China or not include China. Uh, but but it is the start of a of a potentially important conversation. And and even if it never leads to you know, carbon clubs uh, where you have, you know, countries and companies that are advantaged inside the club for reducing emissions for certain products that they trade across borders and 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 penalties for those outside the club. It sends a pretty important signal to all of the industries out there and the and the folks trying to finance those industries that are trying to think, geez, how do we you know, how do we organize around this topic? And so if you take if you take that plus things like the First Movers Coalition, which is a group of companies that decided to make advanced purchasing commitments uh, to to buy truly zero emissions versions of those seven uh, hard to abate sectors and direct air capture over you know the, the next eight and a half years or so, or even things like the Quad, which is technically a security sort of multilateral group. Uh, um, that includes India, Australia, the United States, and Japan. They structured a green shipping alliance. They structured a hydrogen partnership. I, it is just amazing to me to see how much uh, activity is going on in trying to organize these future markets around um, an accelerated transition to to products that have lower emissions. And so I would have told you that that would happen maybe later in the Biden administration or a little bit further off. But it really it really, you know, got kickstarted in a way that I I I don't think people realize all of the different initiatives and activities and interests that's now out there. Uh, driving the space, and that's great. It's it's really it's a really important and interesting development. Yeah, really fascinating, really important topic, and and it dovetails with Jennifer's comment about sort of the experience coming into the Biden administration and how that you know helped them hit the ground running on on a wide variety of topics, including industrial decarbonization, which of course is such a huge challenge. So, um, I, I I'd like to just kind of open it up for a moment and and allow each of you to reflect on. Maybe the comments that that the other has made, uh, if either you know Sarah or Jennifer, something that the other person said that kind of I don't know uh, dovetails with your interests or that rings a bell or makes you think of something new and interesting, uh, just invite you to comment on what each uh, of the other said. So let's start with Jennifer. Jennifer, is there anything in particular that Sarah said that you'd like to reflect on? Um, oh, she had a lot of interesting 
lot of interesting comments and uh, thoughts in that answer. Uh, I, I could take several of them, but I think one place I would, I would just note is that um, I think that part of why this uh, activity with the industrial sectors is happening is because uh, you are actually seeing a lot more uh, effort by large companies to uh, step up and show that they are being progressive on addressing climate change. So it's it's not just a case of government action pushing them, but I think it's probably consumer response. I think it's a case of, you know, as, as leadership in these companies or more and more people who are recognizing just how real the climate crisis is. Uh, I see just all sorts of multinational companies taking on their own net zero commitments. Um, and they were, they were doing this even, even before this administration. So I think it's part of the momentum that we finally, finally may uh, be seeing around just kind of an all of, all of the economy effort toward uh, making a difference over the next decade. And so I think that, you know, the, the, the government efforts are, are wonderful um, to see happening. And it's a, it's a sign of, of, of hope. Um, as far as the the carbon clubs, um, and that's we we could have an entire entire session <laughs> on <laughs> the trade issues. Um, I think that's useful. I also think that that for the U.S. to have robust domestic climate legislation, we have to have a way of showing our industry and our unions that they will not be economically disadvantaged. And I think that's a lot of the motivation behind the carbon border adjustment mechanism that the EU has uh, put forward. Um, and it's probably an essential part of the picture. Uh, whether, whether other countries outside the U.S. and the EU want to join that club or whether they want to run to the WTO to complain about it, I think remains to be seen. Yeah, yeah, good points. Um Sarah, same question over to you. Anything that Jennifer mentioned that um, that you'd like to reflect on? Yeah, yes, absolutely. And and I, I thought Jennifer's uh, selection of topics for both for both questions was really really perfect. Um, the I, I think taking the Kigali Amendment and the Montreal Protocol advancements first, I, I will say, yeah, I think that's really been important. Um, for all the reasons that Jennifer talked about, I've also been interested to see how um, Kigali and the Montreal Protocol in general are serving kind of as a guidepost for some of the organization we're seeing around methane. Um, it, it was interesting to me that, you know, methane as a as a greenhouse gas has really <laughs> come into its moment uh, in in yeah. this year where you know, we've not only got a, you know, a, a hundred plus country commitment to reducing methane emissions, you know, 30%, I, I believe by 2030, um, below 2020 levels, but also, you know, I think it was like $300 million or so of philanthropic money going to try to, to reduce methane emissions. And, and it's interesting to me, that the model for sort of coordinating around that and maybe thinking about how methane has to be separated out and treated, you know, separately, and, and maybe we can make progress on that separately, uh, it, it has been, you know, 
kind of patterned after some of the progress we've seen in other places as well. And so I, I think that those are, you know, that's that that was one interesting sort of thought that was going through my head as Jennifer was talking. And the other is I, you know, I keep jumping ahead to what I need to worry about next. And I thought the point about the progress made and the, you know, in the context of COP26, I keep wondering to myself, you know, what does it look like for us to make progress between now and COP27? Uh, because this year was so focused on ambition and goals, right? And 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 it was, yes, please focus on 2050 and make it very ambitious, but then please focus on your 2030 targets and make them seem actionable. Well, what's what's to come this year, right? If this is the year of implementation, what does it mean to deliver against those goals in a way that's not just credible, but also exciting, right? I mean, it's, it, it, they won't look like net zero, you know, by 2050 targets, like those are big announcements. It, it'll look more like incremental progress. And so I'm, you know, I completely agree about sort of the tenor and the, and the sort of shift in focus for this past year. I am deeply curious at the end of this next year what you know what it's going to look like and whether we'll be able to say oh well the theme for this year was you know really implementing against those targets and we can prove that we did it uh in these ways and I I'll be really interested to see how that you know that works out. Wow. May I say a little bit in response Daniel? Yes, please. Go ahead. Sarah, I just thought that was brilliant. Um and I want to elaborate a little bit on on the analogy you were drawing between uh, Kigali around hydrofluorocarbons and methane. And I think not only do you see parallels because some of the same people who worked on the Kigali negotiations are leading the methane effort, but it's also the case that that in both of those, uh, they are short-term, short-lived climate pollutants, which are incredibly potent, way more potent than carbon dioxide. And there's an urgency to addressing both of them to buy us a little more time to address the more challenging questions around how to reduce uh, carbon dioxide emissions. Yeah, great point. And it actually reminds me that uh, last year's uh, guest with Sarah on this end of the year episode was Barry Rabe and and Barry, who's a colleague of Jennifer's and mine at, at Michigan. Um, mm-hmm. I think his his new book that he's working on now is all about short lived climate pollutants. Um, mm-hmm. So he's you know I think definitely thinking about some of these same trends. Well, um, I'm going to ask you each one more question before we go to our top of the stack segment, but I'm going to ask you to be really quick because we are short on time, which we always are because there's so much to talk about. Um, and that's just to let us know what you're going to be watching in 2022. Sarah has sort of already alluded to, to some of the things she'll be thinking about, but um, I'd just like to ask each of you maybe to point to one thing very briefly um, that you are keeping an eye on and that you're just kind of really curious about how it's going to play out. So Sarah, how about you go first? Okay, I'll keep it fast, and I'm going to have to. Uh, so the uh, first is uh, climate finance. So last year's theme was mobilized private sector dollars. We had, you know, um, investors uh, with $160 trillion of assets under their management come forward and say, we want to be aligned. It's a lot of money. It's a lot of capital. And now the question is, how do you crowd it in? How do you get it aligned? How do you move it in big ways? And and I think that those are actually much, much trickier questions than um, 
than we have led others to believe <laughs> uh, for for all the institutions that are making those pledges for international development finance institutions. I am really curious about what that you know what progress against that goal looks like over the course of the year and and what you know what what blended finance in lots of different circumstances around the world looks like and I think it's a critically important question. So um, that's one. And then the second is. I mentioned if I thought the infrastructure investment bill uh, was was really important. I we are really bad at building infrastructure in the United States. Um, I I am hoping in this year we grapple with that, and we particularly as a climate community recognize that if we're saying yes to greenhouse gas emissions reductions, and I know this is a complicated topic, but we have to say yes to building some of these things that have been traditionally really tricky for us to build. And we have to do so in a way that is very inclusive and empowering for the communities where they are. Um, and that's hard work. And I so but we have to make progress. I am convinced if we don't make progress on on um, those investments in that infrastructure in the next two years, then we're making the rest of this challenge even uh, even harder. So those are the two things that I'm going to be focusing on this year. Yeah, great. Great comments. And, and we just had an episode recently about expanding the electricity grid and some of the challenges that, that come along with that. So absolutely, Sarah, I totally agree. Um, Jennifer, how about you? What uh, are you going to be watching this year? Um, I'm going to be watching one of the sectors Sarah mentioned before, which is aviation. And there's just so much going on there right now. And it's such a significant part of the climate problem. Uh, global aviation is two, maybe as high as three and a half percent of annual emissions, and it's growing and growing rapidly because countries are, you know, need more flights internally, as well as uh, the fact that other emissions areas are going down and aviation is one where it's really hard to reduce your greenhouse gas emissions. But it's one where the industry is seized with the problem. Uh, just in October, the International Trade Association for Global Aviation announced a fly net zero commitment. Uh, the United States uh, in uh, Glasgow announced the U.S. Aviation Climate Action Plan. Uh, there's a Sustainable Aviation Fuel Grand Challenge. Uh, there's all this interesting work going on in terms of research and development of alternatives to conventional aviation fuel-powered flights, such as Rolls-Royce has an electric aircraft that they were flying in September. Two days ago, Malaysia had their first flight uh, Malaysian Airlines using sustainable aviation biofuels. Uh, there's uh, the new international agreement under uh, the UN Civil Aviation Organization has entered into force and effect this year, uh, where over time, uh, global civil aviation is uh, required to offset all of their emissions above a 2019 baseline. And this is a International flights are an entire sector that falls outside of the UN C uh, because they're not attributable to any particular country, so they're not in their national commitments. So it's where there's a lot of customer pressure, people who talk about flight shaming, there's a lot of innovation in the research, there's a lot of government support for the activity, and uh, it's one we really have to solve. So it's one I'm watching closely. Yeah, another really important, really good pick. Well, um, Sarah and Jennifer, this is 
been uh, really fun and it's flown by. You know, I wish we could talk for longer, ideally in person, ideally over drinks, but hopefully that'll happen uh, in 2022. Um, so let's go now to the top of the stack segment where we ask you to recommend something that you've been reading or watching or listening to that you would recommend to our listeners. Um, let's start with uh, Jennifer. Jennifer, what's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack? Well, top of my reading stack, which I've bought but haven't yet read, is Elizabeth Colbert's new book, uh, Under a White Sky. So I'm very eager to read that as a follow-up to her amazing Sixth Extinction book. Uh, what I read recently, but isn't a recent book, is uh, the Invention of Nature, which came out in 2015, which is a biography of Alexander von Humboldt, who used to be second only to Napoleon as the most famous person in the Western world. And now we just vaguely remember there used to be a Humboldt, or there is a Humboldt current, and uh, really interesting biography. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I'll put in a short plug uh, for the interview. We actually interviewed Elizabeth Colbert um, on the show about six months ago when uh, oh, her wow. book came out. And yeah, it's maybe my favorite book of the year. And definitely, you know, no offense to other podcast guests, but it was my favorite podcast of the year, too. <laughs> Except Wait, for even, this one, of even course. more than this one today? <laughs> right. This one, this one gives it a, a run for its money. Okay. Um, Sarah, how about you? What's at the top of your stack? Yeah, so literally at the top of my stack, because I haven't read them yet, I've started both of them, uh, are two books that I'm hoping uh, the juxtaposition of would be helpful for my mindset. <laughs> One is uh, Speed and Scale by John Doerr, uh, which, you know, is supposed to be, uh, you know, the the action plan with uh, all of the things that we're going to need to do to tackle the climate challenge at Speed and Scale um, full, full on with metrics of how to tell uh, whether we're making progress or not. I find books like this to be interesting to sort of see what the conventional wisdom of the folks who've been working on this for a long time is and sort of check my own thinking about where we are relative to where we need to be. And then the other one is a little weird. Um, it's Nick Offerman's Where the Deer and the Antelope Play. I don't know oh, if yeah. there are any Nick Offerman fans out there, but, you know, he's not not necessarily an environmentalist by background, not certainly not thinking about climate, but just trying to grapple with the complexity of the challenge. And so I find reading books that are kind of opposite at the same time are, is helpful to me. <laughs> so they seem a little bit on the on either end of the spectrum of, uh, in the in the universe of sort of challenges that we're talking about. And so those are two that I'll be picking up over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, those both sound fascinating. And um yeah, I wish I had more time on vacation to read that and <laughs> yeah. all of those books and all the other things that I want to read. Well, um, this has been great. Sarah and Jennifer, thank you so much for coming on the show. You are both uh, you know, really lovely people and just fantastic experts on, on all of these topics. So just so grateful for you coming on Resources Radio and spending uh, your time with us here at the end of 2021. Happy New Year. Thanks, Daniel. Happy New Year, everybody. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C., our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests 
and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson, with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.